heaven. What do you think about when you think about heaven? Do you get excited? Do you think to yourself, man, I cannot wait to get to heaven? Or do you think, hmm, not so sure. Not so sure about heaven. Or maybe even, I can't even imagine having to go to heaven. Tragically, many people don't get excited about heaven. I think even sometimes, some of us get depressed or anxious thinking about heaven. Let's be honest. Heaven's not always presented in the best light. Sometimes it's actually presented as kind of a boring place where we're going to have endless days of tedium, just boring. It's like we're going to be sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, or, or, maybe, or maybe it's going to be just like one endless church service, one special hymn after special hymn over and over and over again. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for church services. <laughs> but an eternal church service? Hymn after hymn? Some of us think, man, shoot me now. But then we think, don't shoot me now, because if you shoot me now, I might die and go to heaven. <laughs> many of us, many even of us, many of us that are followers of Jesus, we think this way sometimes. And it's because we don't have a proper understanding or perspective of heaven. It's like, it's like we don't see clearly. It's like we're looking through, like we're looking through the fog. So this morning, Jesus wants to talk to us about heaven. He wants to encourage us with a message about heaven and what heaven is going to be like. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is found on page 824, but before we get there, I'd like to look at a clear perspective of heaven. Look at this clear perspective of Cyprian. Cyprian was a third century theologian, and look what he wrote about heaven. Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us from this place and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. Anyone who has been in foreign lands longs to return to his own native land. We regard paradise as our native land. Cyprian's perspective is rooted in Scripture. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul, look what the Apostle Paul writes. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ. And look what it says which is better by far. Do you view heaven as your native land? Do you believe that it is going to be better by far? Better than anything we can comprehend here that when we get to heaven, it is going to be better by far and we'll be home in our native land. Do you believe that? If you do, good. If you're not so sure, I hope after today, you will feel more so. Because Jesus is going to share with us a little bit about what heaven is like in Mark chapter 12. 
Now remember where we've been. For the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Mark, and we've been looking at the last climactic fatal week of Jesus' life. And Jesus has had some ongoing debates with his opponents. And two weeks ago, we saw that there were priests, teachers, and elders who came to Jesus to confront him about his turning over the tables in the temple. Remember, he went to the temple and he turned over the tables. He threw people out of the temple and he stopped the sacrifices. So these leaders of Israel went to him and essentially said to him, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do this? They're trying to intimidate Jesus. But the result was that they left intimidated by Jesus and by the crowds. Then last week, we saw two additional groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that are on the opposite end of the political spectrum, come to Jesus to try to, to, try to confuse him and confront him and ask him, do we pay taxes or not? The result of that encounter was that they were silenced and the people were even more amazed at Jesus' wisdom. Well, today we're going to look at the third round, if you will, the third round in these debate matches. And there's going to be a new group that's going to confront Jesus, and they're going to confront Jesus. You'd think, you know, by now you would think these people would get the idea that they are not going to win these encounters. But you have to give them a little bit of credit for trying. So now we have a third group that approaches Jesus, and we're going to look at what happens. And we're also going to look at the words of encouragement that Jesus has for us. Mark 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So now we have the introduction of this new group, the Sadducees. Now this is Mark's only reference to the Sadducees, and they were the party of the aristocrats. They're wealthy and they're powerful. They're connected to the chief priests. They're also friendly with Rome, so they're very happy with the current status quo. So just like the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hate Jesus. They were also not very popular with the people. They had a reputation for being harsh, for being rude, for being insensitive. And they believed, they, they believed differently. Their theology was different than most of the people as well. They only believed in the authority of the Torah. They thought that only the Torah was the divine word of God. So they believed that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the only divinely inspired books. The doctrine that caused them the most trouble was the doctrine of the supernatural. They denied everything that was supernatural. So they believed in the existence of God, but they didn't believe in anything else. They rejected everything else that was supernatural. They did not believe in demons, angels, or Satan. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in heaven or hell. They did not believe in a final judgment. They did not believe in life after death. And that's why it says in verse 18, look, that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. So now these Sadducees, they set up their first punch in this round with flattery and a reference to Moses. Now, isn't it interesting? All these groups attempt to flatter Jesus. And you would think that they would understand that the flattery doesn't work, but they're using this flattery to try to make, to try to kind of back Jesus into a corner to set him up. Verse 19, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, 
The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, it's a good setup. They start out with this, with this title, teacher. It's meant to be a sign of respect. It is setting him up with flattery, but they don't believe it. They're not very respectful of him. They don't believe what he has to say. Second, this is a good strategy to use and to quote Moses. Everyone regarded Moses well. Everyone believed that the books that Moses wrote were divinely inspired, that they were the word of God. And here, they are referring to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses gave the law of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. This is the law that requires a brother to marry a deceased man's wife. He has to marry the deceased man's wife, his brother's wife, in order to continue the brother's line, in order to maintain that the inheritance would continue, and to take care of the widow. If you remember back when we were studying the book of Ruth, this was the situation with Boaz and with Ruth. Now, after this setup, they throw the first punch with a question that they believe is going to make Jesus look completely foolish. And there is sarcasm in this question. Recognize the sarcasm because they present to him an absurd hypothetical to make their point. Look at verse 20. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow. But he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Now, they're clearly mocking Jesus here. They are mocking Jesus and anyone else who believes in a resurrection. Moses gave this law. And because of this law, all seven brothers had to marry this one woman. And then she died. Now the question is, now if there is a resurrection, who is this woman going to be married to? Now remember, these Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. They are just asking this question to embarrass Jesus. They want to make him look foolish because they are presenting the absolute absurdity of the resurrection. They believe that the idea of life after death is an absolutely absurd proposition. But I actually think that this is a pretty good question. If we're honest, some of us have even had this question. Like, who, who are we going to be married? If you're, who are we going to be married to in heaven? There's some of you here that were married, your spouse passed away, and you remarried. There are some of you here that have had two spouses pass away, and now you're married to a third spouse. It seems to me that that's a fairly reasonable question. Well, who am I going to be married to in heaven? So it's not necessarily the question that's the problem. It's the motive and the attitude in which they ask the question. Because in their minds, the idea of resurrection is absurd and foolish. And all they want to do is try to make Jesus look foolish. But like we've seen before, Jesus has no trouble responding to their question. And he throws back kind of a verbal uppercut. Look at verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Bam. 
That question clearly did not stump Jesus, and he's not looking foolish. In fact, he goes on the offensive here. In essence, through this question, he's saying, you guys really have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, and you're not very bright. You are getting this completely wrong. He tells them that they're wrong because, number one, they do not know the Scriptures. And number two, they do not know the power of God. Jesus is not holding back here. He's not mincing words. He tells them that they're wrong because they're ignorant of Scripture and they're ignorant about the power of God. Now perhaps, perhaps you and I don't understand heaven because we don't completely understand the Scriptures or the power of God. Perhaps we're not so excited about going to heaven because we just don't understand what the Bible says about heaven or we don't really truly understand how powerful and good God actually is. Interestingly, these same two major problems are the issue today regarding any issue. Think about this. Not knowing the scriptures and not knowing the power of God is at the root of every, almost every difficulty we have. You think about this. Think about the, 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 the trials or the tribulations we face, the anxiety, the fears, sickness, death, all of these things, when we look at these things with an understanding of Scripture and an understanding of the power of God, none of these things seem like that great or that big of a deal. But if we don't know the Scriptures and we don't know the power of God, when we face fears and anxieties, when we face sickness, when we face death, when we face the trials of life, these things become much bigger mountains in our path. That's why it's so important for us as followers of Jesus to know Scripture and know and understand the power of God. Well, now Jesus continues with some specifics. He's going to, he's going to address them. Even though they're trying to make him out to be a fool, He answers and sets them straight. He corrects their system of beliefs. Now, this is also very important for you and me because not only is Jesus correcting the beliefs of the Sadducees, he's giving us some insight. He is going to give us some detail about resurrection and about heaven. Now, he's not going to give us all the detail, but he's going to give us some detail about resurrection and about heaven. Verse 25 When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Jesus here is helping us understand the nature of our resurrected bodies and heavenly relationships. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're thinking through the sermon, make a mental note of this. Jesus is helping us understand our resurrected bodies and our heavenly relationships. And did you catch how he starts Catch the word that he starts with, when. Jesus doesn't say if the dead arise. He says when the dead arise. Right out of the gate, Jesus says the dead will rise. And when the dead rise, Jesus says, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Understand, marriage is an important, wonderful, and God-ordained institution, but it is an absolutely earthly institution. 
we will not be married in heaven. We will not experience marriage as we know it here on earth in heaven. Men and women will not be married in heaven. Now, for some, initially, this is not such a good thing about heaven. This is not one of the things that I put in the plus column for heaven. You know, I love Jen. I like Jen. For those of you who don't, don't know, Jen is my wife. <laughs> but I love her. I like her. I want to be married to her forever. So when I look at this verse, I think to myself, you know what, this isn't, this, this isn't, the, this isn't the best thing about heaven. Now, I know on the other hand, there may be some of you who are sitting there thinking, <laughs> hmm, that doesn't sound so bad. No marriage as we know it in heaven. No marriage as we know it in heaven. Bad news for some, maybe good news for others. But the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. Did you hear me? The Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, the Bible is very clear. There will be marriage in heaven. There will be one marriage in heaven. The marriage in heaven will be between Jesus and his bride. And do you know who his bride is? Yes, his bride is the church. His bride is all of us who are followers of his. All of us who believe in Jesus are his bride. And the Bible is very clear that we, as Jesus' bride, will be married to him in heaven. Paul links our human marriage to the ultimate marriage in heaven in Ephesians 5. Look what Paul writes. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is our earthly marriages. But then look at how Paul continues. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Our one flesh unions here on earth, our marriages here on earth are meant to be a signpost. They're meant to be a signpost. But when we get to our destination, when we arrive in heaven, we no longer need the signpost that helped us to get there because once we get to heaven, we are going to experience the ultimate, perfect, meaningful, joyful marriage with Jesus. Now, I know this can be hard to imagine. It can be hard to wrap our minds around. But think about this. If you are happily married right now, if you are so in love, full, meaningful, great love with your spouse, think about it. This marriage with Jesus is not even going to be able to be compared to the great marriage you are experiencing now. It is going to be so much better. It is going to be more meaningful, more purposeful, more joyful. It is the marriage you are going to experience with Jesus. And if right now your marriage isn't so great, you can look forward to the perfect, meaningful, joyful marriage that you are going to have with Jesus. And if you are here today, this morning, and you are single, you get to look forward to the meaningful, purposeful, joyful marriage that you get to have with Jesus, knowing that it is going to be better by far. But Jesus continues, and he says that we will be like the angels in heaven. Now, this is partially a reference to the fact that angels are not married, but it also provides us with a bit more information about our resurrected selves. 
Now note that Jesus says we will be like angels in heaven. He does not say we will be angels in heaven. This is an important differentiation. Some people believe that when a loved one dies, they go to heaven and they become an angel. That is not the case. Your Aunt Millie is not your guardian angel. She's in heaven, but she's not an angel. She is like an angel. Jesus tells us we are going to be like angels. We are not going to be angels. But this means that there's a few things that, that this reveals for us. It helps us understand that we are going to be deathless and eternal, and we are going to be sinless and glorified. Deathless and eternal. This means that we are going to live forever, that we are never going to die. For all of eternity, we are going to live, and when we're, and when we're living, there's going to be no, not only no more death, but there is going to be no sickness. There is going to be no disease. Think about it. There's going to be no cancer. There's going to be no heart disease. There's going to be no pneumonia. There's going to be no bad backs. There are going to be no ailments in heaven. We are going to live forever and we are going to be completely and fully healthy. And look at else not only deathless and eternal, but sinless. Think about this. We're no longer going to sin. And no one is going to sin against us. We think about this, think of the beauty of, of never hurting anyone. Think more about the beauty of never being hurt by someone else. You see, our sinful natures often get in the way. We can have the best intentions for our relationships but our selfish pride can often get in the way. Misunderstandings, misrepresentations, arguments, all these things can get in the way and affect the relationships that we have with others. But when we're sinless, when our sinful natures no longer exist, we're, we're, we're no longer going to have these problems in our relationships. We're also going to be glorified. Not quite sure how to explain this, but I was thinking, think back to Mark chapter 9. Remember in Mark chapter 9, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he takes Peter, James, and John up with him on that mountain and on that mountain he's transfigured. And Mark tells us that his clothes became a dazzling white, whiter than any bleach could ever make them. And then Moses and Elijah joined them on the mountain. And Moses and Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years and Luke tells us that they appeared in glorious splendor that they're up on this mountain and Jesus is shining brightly because he has been transfigured, he has been glorified. And Elijah and Moses join him as well in absolute glorious splendor. Deathless and eternal, sinless and glorified. Think about it, we are going to have this perfect marriage relationship with Jesus. Imagine how wonderful that's going to be. But if we're deathless and eternal, if we're sinless and glorified, not only is our relationship with Jesus going to be perfect, meaningful, and joyful, but our relationships with others who are there with us, those relationships, because we're no longer going to have the sinful nature, those relationships are going to be perfect, meaningful, and joyful. Think about the intimacy that we're going to have. Intimacy that we're going to have with our relatives and with our friends that have gone before us, intimacy that's not going to be hindered by our sin or by their sin. 
also think about the intimacy that we're going to have with new people we meet there. No sin to block the relationship. I won't hurt them, they won't hurt me. We're gonna experience a wonderful relationship with Jesus and a wonderful intimate relationship with each other. Now, Jesus doesn't answer every question about heaven here. He doesn't answer whether an infant is going to be an infant in heaven or a 90-year-old is going to be a 90-year-old in heaven. But he makes it clear, and he says there is going to be a resurrection. And we are going to be married to Jesus, and our relationship with him is going to be meaningful, perfect, and joyful. And not only with him, but we're going to have relationship with others that is incredibly intimate. It will be better by far. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's not going to let the Sadducees off the hook. Look at what he says next. He's going to drive home the reality of the resurrection. He's driving home the reality of the resurrection. Look at verses 26 and 27. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus is getting in their face now. They started talking about Moses, so Jesus decides he's going to bring it right back to Moses. Which writer do these Sadducees revere more than any other writer? Moses. Moses is their guy. Moses is their man. He's the one who wrote the Torah. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote these divinely inspired works of God. So Jesus goes right back to Moses to prove his point. The resurrection is real. Look again at what Jesus said. Jesus reminded them that God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, Not I was, I am. Jesus here is talking in the present tense. This conversation is recorded in Exodus chapter 5. And when God speaks to Moses about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three men who lived hundreds of years before Moses, he does not speak in the past tense. He speaks in the present tense. That's because while God was speaking to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. And in fact, they were more alive when God was speaking to Moses than they were when they actually lived on this earth. That's why Jesus concludes that he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. In just a few days from this encounter with the Sadducees, Jesus is going to prove this point. Jesus was crucified. He was placed on a cross. He hung on the cross until he died. When he died, they took him down from the cross and they put him in a grave. But he only stayed in the grave for three days because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. 
Jesus speaking to these Sadducees is telling them that the resurrection is real. The resurrection is a reality. And a number of days later, he actually proves it. And by proving it, he has promised to you and to me as his followers, he has promised, he has guaranteed that our resurrection is a reality as well. Look at how Paul writes this. Look at what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. If you believe in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you belong to him, Christ has promised you resurrection and he has promised you resurrection to eternal life because all who believe in Jesus will live forever in a perfect marriage relationship with him, experiencing intimate relationships with all of the other people who will be there. You know what? Everyone in this room this morning, everyone in this room this morning is going to die. Unless Jesus returns first, everyone in this room is going to die. And not only is everyone going to die, everyone is going to be resurrected from the dead. The question is, what will you be resurrected to? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, if you belong to him, you will be resurrected to eternal life. If you don't, you will be resurrected to face God in judgment. The question this morning is which resurrection are you going to face? Today, Jesus is offering you the opportunity to be resurrected to eternal life. Don't miss the opportunity. I know that this morning there are many of you who are struggling. Your life has been difficult. The trials have been great. Nothing ever seems to go right. Life's just been hard. And there's some of you that maybe it's not been your whole life, but right now you're just struggling. You think about your life and maybe it's your family, your career, 
your health, your ambitions. Maybe they've crumbled or they're crumbling. Maybe you're here this morning and you're cynical and you don't have much hope. This message is for you. Now, this message is for everybody, but I think it's especially for those this morning who are struggling, who are finding life hard and life difficult. And this message this morning is meant to be a word of encouragement. In 1952, a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off Catalina Island and put her foot in the Pacific Ocean to begin her swim to California. It's about a 22-mile swim. Florence Chadwick had already swam the English Channel. She was the first woman to do so. She actually went both ways, not in the same day, but she swam the Channel both ways. On this day in 1952, as she set out to swim to California, the weather wasn't very good. It was pretty chilly, and it was quite foggy. It was so foggy, in fact, that she was almost unable to see her guide boat or her lead boat as it directed her towards the shore. And there were many times along the way that she wanted to quit. She wanted to stop. But her mother kept encouraging. Her mother kept saying, no, keep going. You're almost there. Don't stop. Don't give up now. Keep swimming. Just, just keep on going. Well, eventually, Florence became physically and emotionally exhausted. And she stopped swimming. And they pulled her out of the water. It wasn't until she got into the boat that she realized that she was only a half a mile from shore. The next day, at the news conference, she said, I couldn't see through the fog. If I had only known that shore was that close, I think I could have made it. Think about those words. If I had only known that shore was that close, I think I could have made it. Shore is that close. Our shore, as followers of Jesus, is Jesus himself. And the promise that he is preparing a place for us, the promise of a perfect marriage relationship with him and intimate, deep relationships with other people, the shore is that close. I know, I know life gets difficult. I know the trials can be great. I know that right now some of you are struggling and you do not know what tomorrow looks like, but I promise you, and that is what Jesus says, and that is what this text says, that shore is that close. Don't give up. Don't stop swimming. Keep going knowing that shore is that close. I know.
it can be hard to imagine all of this. But here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to shut your eyes. I'd like you to shut your eyes right now and imagine. And what I want you to imagine is that you're looking off into the distance, you're looking at the shore. And you look on shore and standing on shore is Jesus. He's standing on the shore and he's, he's standing there with his arms open wide. And he's looking directly, he's looking directly at you. And he has this huge, beautiful smile on his face. And his arms are open wide. And as you walk to him, his smile grows. His excitement increases. And he's looking right at you. And, and he knows, he knows you. He fully knows you. And he knows everything that you've ever done wrong. And he knows everything that you've ever done right. And he looks at you and he he all you can see is the love that is flowing from him. And you walk up to him and he wraps his arms around you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I love you. Welcome home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning each one of us will be encouraged by these words of Jesus. That we would be encouraged by the fact that there is a resurrection. There is life after death a life in which we will be married to your son, Jesus, and we will experience incredible, intimate relationships with others. Lord, help us to be able to imagine, to understand, to more than, to understand that shore is just that close. And Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us the courage and the strength to keep swimming. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.